How's everybody doing? You guys are good? Yeah, well, it's good to see everybody here on this beautiful fall day. Um, I don't know if, like, a lot of you, we've had that sickness or whatever that thing was that kind of swept through and decimated a bunch of people in our house. So uh, so I'm glad to be here today, feeling pretty well, and, and uh, Trisha was out with it for a day or so, and... Um, Anyway, so yeah, just grateful for health today and uh, feeling pretty good. So, okay, this is what we're talking about today. Um, and guys, we're almost we're almost there. So we've been on a we've been on a journey for the last six weeks, and uh, Tuesday is the big day. Uh, so these are the church doors in Wittenberg. Uh, those are not the doors that Martin Luther actually nailed the 95 Theses to. Those are replacements. Um, the doors that are on there now are replacements. Uh, but Tuesday is the day, the, the, the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses on the door of that. The, the church is the same. Nailing the 95 Theses on the door of the church and, of course, sparking... Uh, the Reformation. And so uh, I think it's been a, you know, as Mike alluded to, it's, it's been a good series, and I've enjoyed it. And, and as we wind down, I just wanted to point out a couple of things. You know, we've talked a lot about some arcane points of Roman Catholic theology, and, and when I was teaching, you know, I, I told you my head just hurts from, from trying to unravel this and figure this out. And, and with 500 years of history, to us, it may not seem like that much of a big deal. When we talk about the justification of, <clears throat> uh, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, our response might be, well, yeah, of course, because, because we've always, we've grown up with that. So we have 500 years of history. But I hope that through this series that you have kind of gotten a taste of, of what a big deal this was. So, so prior to this, prior to Martin Luther and the Reformation, uh, you know, the Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church was the mediator between God and man, essentially. And so here comes this upstart monk and uh, starts this revolution, and all of a sudden, it's no longer the church that's a mediator between God and man, it's Christ is the mediator between God and man, which is what the scripture says, Right? And, and so that was just a huge, huge deal. It's hard to overstate the importance of that doctrine being recovered. Okay? And so for our 500 years of history, we think, oh, oh yeah, of course. But, but that, was a, that was a big deal. Um, and the Reformers, you know, Martin Luther didn't, didn't make something up. So it wasn't new. It was new to the people of the 15th century. But it wasn't new. Martin Luther rediscovered the biblical doctrine that Paul had laid down, right? And so that was a huge deal. And then I hope that, uh, and I think that we have done a fairly good job of this, is that we've kept the focus on the actual doctrines and, and not on the reformers themselves. Okay, so we want to be free to be grateful and thankful uh, for what God did through Martin Luther and the rest of the Reformers. But they were men, just like uh, most of us were. 
And it doesn't take much research to figure out that they were, in some cases, really flawed men. Martin Luther, later on in his life, was, uh, was pretty anti-Semitic. Um, you know, Calvin uh, approved of, uh, of uh, the execution of probably an innocent man. Uh, and the other, the other guys, they had, they had skeletons in their closet as well, right? So they were men whom God used just like God uses men now, flawed men, to do something amazing. And so we wanted to keep the focus on the doctrines and uh, not to pat ourselves on the back, but I think hopefully we've done that. Okay, so I just want to say uh, thanks to everybody that taught Sunday school. I thought did a really good job. The messages were good. Um, they, were, <laughs> they were painful at times, uh, but I think it's been a good service. I mean, I think it's been a good series. I've been blessed by it, and hopefully that you have too. Hopefully you've gained a greater appreciation of the love of God that has been lavished on us in Christ, because that was our goal. And so I hope we've accomplished that. Okay, this is our last, uh, our very, very last, for the next 500 years, message on the Reformation. Okay, we're not going to do a 501st or we're not going to do a 510th or, or anything like that. This is it. Um, and we're actually not going to focus on the Reformation uh, so much. I'll allude to it. I'll make a couple of comments about it. But we're not really going to talk about the Reformation. What I want to talk about is, in our day and age, 500 years removed, how do we contend for the faith that was recovered and what Jude says, the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. How, how do we do that? Um, you may not be able to see this very well. The picture looked better when I had it on my computer. Um, and so uh, we're going we're gonna to get to how we contend for the faith. We're going to take a little rabbit trail. So uh, the comment on the statue, and actually this is in front of the National Archives in Washington, D.C. Some of you may recognize it. it says eternal vigilance is the price of liberty okay and that's a quote that's been variously attributed to uh, thomas jefferson and abraham lincoln and it was interesting because i couldn't find where either of them actually said it so uh, even though it's been attributed to them um, it was originally it's derived from a quote that was originally said in 1790 by John Philip Curran. He was an Irish politician. I'm sure you guys are all familiar with him. He's a household name. Um, and the original quote was, the condition upon which God hath given liberty to man is eternal vigilance. And it's not so much important who said it, uh, whether it was Jefferson or Lincoln or, or Curran who said it. What's important is the sentiment behind the quote. And what it says from a political context, it means that preserving our God-given liberties requires constant vigilance. It requires constant vigilance to, uh, to protect and defend institutions that promote liberty and ideas that promote liberty. Okay, and I think whatever our political uh, stripe, we can all agree that we can see the consequences of a lack of vigilance in our society today. That we haven't done a very good job of that. Okay, So um, 
we haven't been diligent as a nation to protect and preserve those institutions and really those ideas that allow us to live free. Uh, we see this, uh, you know, it's been all over the news, uh, most prevalently uh, with free speech and, and college students not really understanding what free speech is. And so upwards of 70% of college students uh, support limits on uh, hate speech, okay? Uh, those same 70% can't really define what hate speech is, uh, so there's not a clear definition. This is, this is as good a definition as, as there is for hate speech. Uh, speech that hurts other people's feelings should somehow be regulated. Okay? Um, oh, stepped on a pen, sorry. Um, and so they can't clearly define what it is, and then they don't understand, because we haven't done a good job of, of passing on the idea, they don't understand the implications of giving the government the ability to regulate certain types of speech, right? It's just a bad idea. Okay, this isn't a political talk, but there's a, there's a corollary to the church in that we haven't done, as a church, we haven't done a good job of protecting and promoting those institutions and the ideas that promote faith and allow us to pass faith on to the next generation. I'm sure you guys have heard, uh, you know, it's the really depressing statistic that about 70% of uh, young adults, when they turn 18, they leave the faith. Uh, some people say it's 80%. Some people say it's a little bit less. But it's right around 70% leave the faith. The good news is that about half of those at some point return when they get older. Uh, so they have kids, they get married, and they come back to the faith. But that's still a large number of people that leave the faith and never come back, okay? Now, now we've just spent seven weeks saying that, you know, faith is of God, God is sovereign in, in faith, and so I don't want you to hear me saying that, that that's not the case, that if we just work and we do all this stuff, we have all these programs and, and people will come back to the faith. That, that's not what I'm saying. I'm, I'm fully affirming that faith is from God alone, but as Mike said last week, um, in his message, you know, the mandate that Christ gave the disciples in Matthew 28 to make, uh, to make disciples of all men still applies to us. And so we need to be about doing that. Okay. And as we talk about... Okay. okay. Um, as we talk about uh, contending for the faith, I think, too... We need to understand that uh, contending for the faith is not unique to our culture or our time. Okay? Um, you know, again, going back to last week, Mike, Mike talked about American Catholics, and they're really more American than they are Catholic. And so what that means is, as Americans, we're individualistic. Uh, we do things our way. If, uh, if I agree... Or, or the church's values align with my Americanism, well, then I'll, I'll agree with that. If they don't, then I'm not going to do it. And, and we kind of take that same uh, thought with um, 
defending the faith, right? So, so if, if the Americans don't do it, it's not going to get done, right? Or, or this, is, this is the first time there's been threats to the faith. Uh, and, and we're the last bastion of, of, of the church. We're, we're the line in the sand. And then really, guys, that's not the case, okay? Um, from the beginning, there have been challenges to the faith, okay? The Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 was convened because Jewish converts um, were saying that Gentile converts had to be circumcised and they had to keep the dietary laws, the, the uh, religious laws. Okay, and so Paul was contending against that for the for the, no, it's it's Christ alone. Um, you know, in the fourth century, uh, so. Uh, in the 300s, not too long after uh, the disciples were gone, you know, Athanasius had to fight um, Arius and really most of the rest of the world over the divinity of Christ. Augustine, who was a contemporary of um, Athanasius, uh, again around that same time frame, took on Pelagius over free will and what the what the extent of free will was. Um, Willie did a good job talking about. Um, you know, in the 18th and 19th century, the conflict between liberalism and uh, fundamentalism. Okay, the gentleman on your right um, is J. Gresham Machen, and uh, and he took on liberalism uh, pretty forcefully in the 1920s. And then, of course, the, the gentleman on the left is is Charles Spurgeon, um, who's called the Prince of Preachers, and, and he was very adamant in focusing on uh, the doctrines that came out of the, the Reformation. Okay? So every generation has had to fight for the faith, and we're no different. And if God tarries, the generation behind us will have to keep doing the same thing. Um, we can have joy in that fight, and when the fight seems intense, it seems, it seems hard, it seems like we're losing, we can have joy in that fight because... Uh, Christ has promised that the church will prevail. All right, so we're assured of victory. We can be joyous warriors uh, because of that. And I also think uh, when we talk about contending for the faith that as Americans we, we kind of get a little distracted about what exactly it is we're contending for. So um, we mentioned uh, freedom of speech earlier and uh, I think sometimes we think that what we're really contending for is religious liberty. Uh, now, religious liberty is important. I'm thankful for it. Uh, but that's not what we're contending for. We're not contending for religious liberty. Most of the rest of the global church is thriving in areas that don't have religious liberty. So the church in China, uh, where they're uh, arresting pastors, is thriving the church in Nigeria, where gathering like this could get you blown up or slaughtered, is thriving. Okay, there, there's some issues with the African church, but in large part, those those churches are thriving. Okay, so we're not after we're not after religious liberty. That's not our ultimate goal. As important as that is, um, according to Jude, Jude three. Uh, we're contending for the faith that's once for all been handed down to the saints. All right. So we're 500 years removed 
from the Reformation. And uh, I wrote this actually before Willie's talk, because after Willie's Sunday school, things look kind of depressing um, as far as the Reformation goes. But um, So we're 500 years removed from the Reformation. We have the true gospel. Uh, we have the Bible in our language, uh, actually in several languages. You pull out your phone, you can, you can read the Bible in, in multitudes of languages. Uh, we live in an amazing digital age where you can listen to some amazing, amazing preachers, you can access commentaries. Um, we just have a myriad of resources at our hands that it would seem like the fight for the faith is pretty secure. It doesn't seem like we could lose the faith at this point. Things are pretty good. Um, but that's, that's not the case. There are threats to the gospel, and there are threats that we need to be serious about. Um, I'm going to mention a couple. There's things I could have mentioned that I didn't. There's things maybe you'll think of that I didn't. Uh, but these are the ones that I think are the most serious, and so I wanted to, to bring them forward. Um, the first is the attack against the infallibility and the inerrancy of Scripture. All right? Infallibility and inerrancy, those are theological terms and simply means the Bible is the supreme authority for faith and life and it's true in what it teaches and affirms. Okay? Um, okay, this is Bart Ehrman. Um, who maybe you know who he is or maybe you don't know who he is. Uh, you've heard me talk to about him uh, before. So Bart Ehrman is a, uh, I think he's now a distinguished professor of New Testament um, at a major American university. Okay? And you can see this quote as Mark, or Bart Ehrman um, has written scholarly articles and scholarly, excuse me guys, scholarly books saying that uh, most of the Bible is not true. Um, Okay? So most of what was written in the epistles was written uh, not by James or Paul, but was written by somebody else purporting to be James and Paul, and so it's all a lie. All right? Now, Bart Ehrman is not some fringe character. He's not some nut who is, uh, you know, screaming that, um, that it's all a lie. This is a respected uh, smart guy. He's a PhD. He can read the, la- the, the documents in their original languages. He's studied. Um, and yet, he's pushing the idea that the scriptures can't be trusted. Um, Bart Ehrman is also one of the proponents of the belief that there's no historical, um, the resurrection never happened. Okay? So that Jesus never rose from the dead. Um, that's a problem, right? Yeah, you guys agree with that? If Bart Ehrman is correct, that's a problem. All right. So this is First Corinthians fifteen, and this is what the Apostle Paul says: "For I passed on to you as most important what I also received." Okay, most important. There's nothing more important than this: Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures; that He was buried. And he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Well, if the scriptures aren't true, 
then, then this is not true. If the scriptures are fake, then what they say about Christ is fake. All right? And Paul's going to go on and say, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. If the resurrection is false, our proclamation is vain, your faith is false. Okay? They say, moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead are not raised. All right? So if you can undermine this belief, then, uh, you know, as Willie said in Sunday school, you just cut the legs out from under, uh, from Christianity, right? If that's not true, then then we're, uh, of all men, to be most pitied. We should be pitied. At the end of that, he says, we have put our hope in Christ for this life only. We should be pitied more than anyone. All right. And closely tied to... Okay, closely tied to uh, the infallibility, denying the infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture, um, and this is a more recent, uh, well, I guess not recent phenomenon, it's within the last 10 years or so, it's really gained steam, is to deny the historicity of Adam and Eve. Okay? And essentially there's a school of thought um, that says the first 11 chapters of Genesis are not historical, uh, they're mythical, Adam and Eve were not real people. Uh, they, there's various flavors of this. So they were either hominids that God uh, touched and, and gave his spirit to, or, yeah, I don't really understand. The whole, Mike could probably tell you all about it because he's been to ETS and has heard all the talks. Um, but anyway, the idea is not that we had actual parents that God created specially and that they sinned and disobeyed against God. It's that we've just kind of all fallen short of God's ideal for humanity. And so because of that, uh, God is kind of angry. And, and while it seems like this is not directly tied to the gospel, it is because you know Paul makes an argument in Romans 5 where he contrasts uh, the sin of Adam with the sacrifice that Christ made. So, so Paul's saying that through the one man, Adam, sin and death came into the world. And through the sacrifice of one man, Christ, we got justification and we got life. That's my paraphrase, guys. Um, okay, well, if there was no Adam, then where are we at? Right, yeah, somebody, no Christ. Right? Um, and again, you know, Paul talks later on in, in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, he contrasts Christ and Adam again. All right? So, so if, there's no, if there's no historical Adam, then there's no Christ. You, you lose the foundation. All right? And, and you can sum all this up where, where do we go with all this? We go, we go all the way back to Genesis 3, to the serpent. All right? So the serpent said, did God really say? All right? So that's always been, that's always been the attack. Uh, it just takes various forms. Did God really say? 
Is scripture really true? Did this really happen? Right? If you can undermine that, then you can undermine the faith, and you can undermine the gospel. Okay. Probably the most um, the most dangerous threat to the gospel is just plain ignorance of what the gospel is. Okay? Uh, we've talked about this. This is a Pew Research Survey uh, that they did uh, since the anniversary of the Reformation was coming up. And they asked people in Western Europe and the United States, what do you believe? Uh, is it salvation by faith alone, or is it salvation by faith and works? 52% of professing Protestants uh, say that it's faith and works, okay? which, is, which is a historically Roman Catholic doctrine. All right? It's like the Reformation never happened. Um, and I didn't know until Willie Sunday School about the other people that had signed the joint declaration on um, the justification, doctrine of justification. Okay? So there's just ignorance about what the gospel is. Uh, J.C. Ryle, he was a 19th century Anglican bishop, and this is what he says. Um, he was talking about ways that you can spoil the gospel. You may spoil the gospel by addition. You have only to add to Christ, the grand object of faith, some other objects as equally worthy of honor, and the mischief is done. Add anything to Christ, and the gospel ceases to be a pure gospel. Add anything to Christ, and the gospel ceases to be a pure gospel. All right? So you add works to the gospel it ceases to be the gospel. And yet, 52% of people who are professing Protestants believe that that's exactly what the gospel is. It's faith and works. All right? Okay, so, um, so how do we contend for the faith? How do we contend for the faith that was once for all handed down? Uh, and I want to brief, briefly suggest uh, four ways that we can do that. Uh, the first is, is that we can pray. Uh, you know, a lot of times we say, the only thing I can do is pray. Uh, well, coincidentally, the best thing you can do is pray. Um, so when you get to that, uh, you should pray. Right? So this is Ephesians 6. And I'm sorry if my references didn't show up for some reason. Um, this is Ephesians 6. Paul is talking about, put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We're not fighting against people. We're not fighting against flesh and blood. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. And then the second reference is 2 Corinthians 10.4. Um, Paul's saying, For although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. Since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds, we demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Okay, so since our enemy is not ultimately flesh and blood, our enemy is spiritual, our enemy is Satan and fallen angels, the best weapons we have against them are prayer. All right? Now, we're not as open to this in the West as uh, 
as other parts of the world are. Okay, but it, it is a fact that there are spiritual forces that are waging war against the church. All right, you can take this to extreme where everything that happens is a sign of demonic activity, and there's a demon behind every bush. Um, but there are spiritual forces that are at work. I had a pastor one time, he said, uh, you know, whenever something's going on, there's something invisible happening. You know, you, you see the effects of uh, broken homes, or you see, if it, but there's something, there's something invisible going on. There's something spiritual going on to that, okay? And, and, and we pay far less attention to that than we should. And we should spend far more times on our knees than we do. And we might have a lot more victory than we do if we did that. Okay? So not only praying against spiritual forces, uh, and what we're praying for is we're praying for God to move against those spiritual forces, for God to, to exercise his power, to exert his power against those spiritual forces. Not only that, um, we're praying... Oops, sorry. Um, we're also praying for unbelievers, right? We're praying for unbelievers that their eyes would be opened, uh, that they would uh, have the scales removed from their eyes, that they they understand the truth, uh, that the gospel would be real to them. But we also need to be praying for each other, okay? Um, you know, one of the helpful exercises is just to read through Paul's prayers in the epistles and, and modify those when you're praying for for other people. Uh, the prayer calendar is a good good thing to do that with. So so get the epistles and, and get some prayers out of those. And then as you're praying through the list, pray those things for um, for these people. Um, this is Colossians two uh, one through four, and this is Paul. He says, "I want their hearts to be encouraged." and join together in love so that they may have all the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. In him, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What a great thing to pray for somebody. I would love to have somebody praying that for me. Okay? Or this is Ephesians 1, 17 through 19. Uh, I pray that the, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. Listen, guys, there's nothing wrong with praying uh, that somebody would get better, uh, somebody would be uh, uh, kept from sickness, okay? Uh, hopefully some of you were praying for us when we were sick this week, and we appreciated it. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But what a great thing to pray uh, for somebody. God, would you give my brothers and sisters more of Christ? Would you protect them from uh, not only spiritual forces, but other forces that want to draw them away from the gospel. God, would you uh, surround them with your love? Would you let them know what is the hope of his calling? 
What is the hope of his calling in Christ? Right? Do, we, do we need that sometimes? We live in this crazy world. Do you need to know what the hope of the calling in Christ is sometimes? Yeah. To pray for each other in that way, that God would just move in our lives that we would be so gospel-focused. We'd be so enamored. Um, you know, we talked, the men's advance, we talked about our first love being Christ. <clears throat> God, would you give my brothers and sisters a first love for you that can't be shaken? Uh, you know, what, what would this church, what would our lives, how would they look differently if we actually did this? Okay? Um, the second way that we can contend for the faith is learn to recognize counterfeits. Um, uh, nope, I don't have a slide for that. Um, and this was not my um, analogy. This was actually uh, John MacArthur said this, but when they train federal agents to recognize counterfeit money, they actually don't study counterfeit money, which I thought was counterintuitive, right? Yeah, so, so what you do is you study the original until you're so familiar with the original that you can recognize a forgery pretty quickly. Right? You're so familiar with what the original looks like that when somebody tries to pass you a forgery, you're like, no, this isn't, this isn't right. This isn't what, uh, what it really looks like. Okay, so we, you know, we don't need to be experts in Roman Catholic theology. We don't need to be experts in Mormon theology or Jehovah's Witness theology or, or what Islam says. We don't need to be experts in any of those things, all right, to contend for the faith. Apologetics has its place, and I'm not demeaning that. Uh, you know, I'm a Bible nerd, so I like getting into all that stuff. But, but we don't need to be experts in all that stuff. We need to be experts in the original. We need to be experts in the gospel. We need to preach to ourselves and to others Christ and him crucified, as Paul says. Okay? Now you guys know where I'm going with this, right? Because we say this almost every Sunday from this pulpit. Someone says, read your Bibles. And it's cliche. Your eyes glaze over at this part of the service, right? And so there's like this break. What did he say? He said something. Okay. But really, guys, there is no substitute. If you want to keep yourself from error, if you want to contend for the faith, there is no substitute for reading your Bible so that when you're presented with a fake, you can say, no, that's not. That's not the gospel. That's not what the scripture says because I know what the scripture says. All right. There's no substitute for it. All right. Anybody recognize this guy? You know who this is? Boo. This is where you're supposed to boo. It's like Haman. At, uh, uh, okay. Uh, another way to contend for the gospel is we need to recognize, that, recognize insider threats. Okay. This is Edward James Snowden. Snowden, yeah. Hero to some, uh, not to me, uh, or to anybody else. Okay, so Edward Snowden was a NSA contractor. And in 2013, he stole, I don't know how many documents, just tons of classified information, and leaked it. All right, he is uh, living comfortably in Russia uh, right now. 
probably scared uh, that he's going to get taken out by the CIA or NSA or somebody, uh, which no, I'm not going to say that. Um, yeah, my my filter kicked in. You're good. Okay. Uh, I just lost my train of thought. Sorry. Where's I where's I going with that? Okay, so Edward Snowden was an insider, right? So he had an NSA security clearance. Uh, and so he was able to uh, bypass the, the outward security, right? So NSA, they've got firewalls, they've got, uh, they've got security uh, to preget, prevent against hacking attacks, all right? And in the news, uh, you hear all these things about hackers, and, and they steal all these documents, and, and oh, hackers are... T- the real threat is people on the inside, all right? Because you're not expecting them. All right, and they lull you into a sense of security. So the real threat is people on the inside. You know, Paul said this in, in Acts chapter 20. He's saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders. Uh, they're on the beach, and they're, they're crying, and they're having a hug fest, and Paul's getting ready to go to Jerusalem, and, and he's going to die soon. Uh, and he, So he calls the elders to him, and he says, I'm guilt, I am innocent of the blood of all men, uh, because I haven't, I haven't shied away from proclaiming the gospel. And this is what he says to him. He says, uh, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up, even from your own number, and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. From your own number, from you guys who are crying on my shoulder right now saying, Paul, don't go. Some of you are wolves and you're going to savage the sheep. All right? We talked earlier, uh, Bart, Bart Ehrman is an agnostic. He wouldn't claim the faith. But some of the people who are saying there's no historical Adam and Eve teach at evangelical seminaries. They're people whose names you would recognize. They've written books. Probably some of you have read some of their books. Okay, these are people that are inside the faith. They're inside the faith. All right. Now I'm not saying be paranoid and, and don't uh, you know don't don't listen to anybody. What I'm saying is, um, again, going back to my previous point, know the originals, know what the gospel says, and then don't listen to people uncritically. Right? Just because somebody says they're a Christian, don't take what they say, don't listen uncritically. Don't do that with anybody. Don't do that with me or, or anybody else. All right? Be like the Bereans. Study the scriptures to see if these things are so. All right. And then finally, we need to pass on the faith. Anybody remember this? It's heartbreaking, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh. Okay, this was the uh, 2008 Beijing Olympics. It was the 4 by 100 meter men's relay. Uh, the athlete in the front is Tyson Gay, who at the time was the second fastest man in the world after Usain Bolt. Okay, so all Tyson Gay had to do was get the baton from Darvis Patton, sprint to the finish line, and the USA wins gold. And they fumbled it. They didn't pass a baton. Okay? 
You see their hands are in the wrong position. Whatever. Okay? Uh, They didn't pass the baton. They actually dropped it. The baton fell on the track. They didn't even finish the race. Okay? And so, of course, we didn't didn't win gold. All right? The same thing can happen to us, guys. All right? We can... We can not pass on the faith to the next generation. Second Timothy was written uh, by the Apostle Paul, and he was in prison. Uh, it was written to his son in the faith, Timothy, and he was awaiting prison. He was probably going to get executed pretty soon. Um, and in Second Timothy 2, he says, um, do I have that? Yeah. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. All right? Commit to other men. Okay? So that they can, and they're faithful men, and they're going to they're gonna teach it to others also. All right? And Second uh, Timothy 3, the second reference. Okay? He says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Okay? And at the end of his life, Paul could say, I've run the race. I've finished the course. I've been faithful. All right? So in in essence, the Reformation was all about, at some point, the baton didn't get passed. This didn't happen. We don't know when it didn't happen, but at some point it didn't happen. And so the Reformation was, in essence, Martin Luther picking that baton back up and handing it to faithful men, who handed it to faithful men, who handed it to faithful men. All right? Until it got to us. And here we are. All right? And it's our job to guard the true gospel, to protect it, to defend it, and to pass it on. And that's how we contend for the faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, so much that in your grace and your mercy and your love for us, to God, that uh, you allowed the gospel to be recovered. Um, Thank you, dear God, that uh, it is by faith alone, in Christ alone, that we're saved. We're brought into relationship with you. God, I pray for us that we would contend, contend faithfully for this true gospel, dear God. Father, that we would keep our eyes focused on what we need to do, on the prize set before us, dear God, and that we'd run our race, that we'd run it with diligence, uh, we'd run it with joy, dear God, and uh, Father, that we'd run it with the sure knowledge that uh, uh, victory has been assured by your purchase uh, of your church, dear God. Father, let us glorify and honor you as we sing. Uh, And as we praise you, dear God, amen.